Well, if you've been reading through the book of James, you have probably picked up on the fact that James is indebted to Jesus for the content of his letter. In James, he is simply repeating with different language and different metaphors the teachings that Jesus gave during his earthly ministry. So even though he doesn't quote Jesus directly, he does allude to his teaching quite often. This is especially clear, I think, in the text that we're looking at this morning. As we read it, we hear Jesus' teaching coming through it all along the way, especially Jesus' parable of the sower that's recorded in the Gospels, in Matthew 13 and Mark 4 and Luke 8. When we hear the command to receive the implanted word, the word is pictured as a seed, and Jesus' parable of the sower comes to mind where the sower or a gardener goes out to plant seeds and in the way of planting in that day, casting the seed out, some of the seeds fall along the hardened path and birds sweep in and pick the seed up and eat it. Other seeds fall on rocky ground and even though they initially spring to life, they never take root. The plant is short-lived. Other seeds fall among thorns and thistles in their choked the, the plant is choked out by the weeds these thorns and thistles represent the worries of the age the deceitfulness of wealth desire for other things things that James is really concerned about in his letter as well finally though some seeds are planted in good ground it's the kind of soil that warmly receives the word that provides a hospitable environment for growth so that the seed produces fruit to varying degrees. Well, where Jesus simply describes different kinds of soils and says that these kinds of things happen, that people receive the word in different way, James tells us what we ought to do to become the right kind of soil. So if you're like me, maybe you've heard Jesus' parable of the soils before, and you've walked away a little bit disheartened because you think, well, what if I'm the wrong kind of soil? What do I do? Well, James helps us out here. He takes Jesus' teaching to the next level, and he gives us clear instruction so that we can become good soil. That when we start to sense that the soil of our heart is hard or filled with weeds and thorns and thistles— we will know what to do. Ultimately, James, in this paragraph, is calling on us to receive the word and to receive it in a particular way. He gives us instructions to help us receive the word rightly, and he does so with an urgent call. He calls us to understand, to pay attention, to weed out sin from the soil of our hearts, and to receive with humility the implanted word. That's what we're going to consider this morning, really in three points. Point number one, pay attention. Point number two, weed out sin. And point number three, humbly receive the word. But I need to provide two points of clarifications before we get there. First, as we read these commands, we need to understand the commands in relationship to one another. They're not randomly thrown out here. James has not totally changed his focus in this letter to stop talking about a Christian response to trial. He's not doing something random here. He's giving these commands in that context of a Christian response to trial 
And he's giving these initial commands as a way of enabling proper reception of the word. So as you can see on the chart here, the text we're considering is in the middle, and it points backwards. It relates to what he's already said, but it also points forward. In our text, James summarizes with short commands the necessity of listening to God during times of trial, to receiving his wisdom and actually listening to it. He gives a requirement of refraining from speaking hasty words of accusation against God a warning against allowing our internal evil desires, such as anger, to animate sinful action in response to our trials. Those desires give birth to sin, and they stand in diametric opposition to God's desires. They don't produce the righteousness of God. So these commands point backward, but they also point forward to foreshadow what James will talk about later in the letter as he picks up and develops these themes more fully. He'll address true listening and hearing and doing. He'll address speech ethics and sinful desires, and he'll talk about the need to patiently wait for the fruit of God's righteousness, just as a farmer waits for the fruit of the earth. So the text we're considering right now is like the hyper-condensed form of everything else in the letter, which makes it really hard to talk about it in a brief way, without being repetitive later on, but it also makes it impossible just to stop and give a brief comment on each one. They invite careful attention and reflection. So we need to keep these commands in the context of the letter, but we also have to reflect on them deeply. That's what we're going to do this morning. But then second, we need to catch on to the urgency of these instructions. So even though the grammar in verse 19 is smoothed out in our English translations, if you're, if you're reading it in the original language, it's like James breaks off mid-sentence. So it's like he's saying, dear brothers and sisters, understand, and then he stops the sentence and then jumps into three really brief commands. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. So in breaking off the sentence, he's communicating urgency. I like the way that the New English translation puts it with an exclamation point. My brothers and sisters understand this exclamation point. There's an urgency about these commands. We need to pay attention to them right now. But even in his urgency, James doesn't run over his readers. He pauses again to refer to them as dear brothers and sisters. Depending on the translation you're reading, beloved brothers and sisters. They're loved by God. His instructions are not rattled off in a fit of frustration. They're animated by charity and grace and compassion. So even as we hear these succinct commands, we hear them with the love and tenderness that James gives them. I think that this is an example for us. This mode of operating ought to shape our own practices when we confront one another over sin when we challenge one another in the faith, when we disciple one another in the ways of Christ, when we share the gospel with unbelievers, we do so not in frustration or anger, but with love and compassion, with terms of endearment. I want to say here at Resurrection Church, whether we're working through the finer points of doctrine 
or pointing out areas for discipleship, we should always adopt James's mode of speaking the truth in love. In our haste to provide correction, whether it's in the assembly or with another Christian in private or in your family, we shouldn't do it in frustration. We should do it in kindness and charity. But we don't have to sacrifice clarity to do so. We can truly speak truth and love, and that's what James does here. So he begins his call, ultimately, for us to receive the word of God by calling us to pay attention. To pay attention. Stop being driven by your emotions. Stop talking and start listening. Pay attention in the kind of way that will lead to obedient action. Now, Christians have always needed these commands. It's always been true. It was true 2,000 years ago when James wrote this. But I think it's especially true for us now because we live in a society that habituates distraction. We don't live in a world that allows us to reflect and to contemplate and to slow down and pay attention. In fact, everything about our society is ordered against careful contemplation and reflection. So I think that we need this all the more. We need God to give us rest so that we can obey these commands. We're habituated to distraction. We're habituated to quick expression of our emotion. We're habituated to impulsively speaking our minds and instantly giving ourselves to outrage. That's not the way that James wants us to operate. He's trying to orient us to attentiveness. He does it with the kind of urgency that ought to snap us out of our distracted mode of being that comes so naturally. So be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. So let's consider each of these in turn. First, be quick to listen. I think specifically, James wants us to be quick to listen to God's wisdom and God's word. That's the context here. Ask God for wisdom and then actually listen to it. Don't start talking over God when he's speaking. Know that God communicates wisdom in a variety of ways, but he does so fundamentally through his word and then secondarily through the guidance of, the, of other people, through meditation on truth, Even in nature, God communicates his wise ways. He communicates to us on the regular all the time through his spirit. But very often, we fail to listen. We're the people who don't have ears to hear. So in this instruction, we're confronted with the reality that genuinely listening does not come naturally to most of us. I think it's only infrequently when you're describing someone that you'll describe them as a good listener. We don't really know that many good listeners, so when we find one, it's worth remarking about. That's why we have that phrase, a person is a good listener. Well, James wants us to become good listeners because we're not naturally inclined to listen. We're naturally inclined to speaking, or as others are speaking, we're inclined to formulating our response in our head so that as soon as they stop making noise with their mouth, we can say the thing that we wanted to say. Or we don't even construct a response, we just zone out. We adopt the wrong kind of listening. The in one ear and out the other kind of listening, that's not actually hearing. I want to suggest that if we're going to be the kind of people 
who are inclined to listening to the wisdom of God and his word, we need to be the kind of people who simply habituate listening into our lives, who make listening a habit, a natural disposition. So while it's true that James here is focusing primarily on listening to God and his word, it's hard to imagine that we can become the kind of people who listen to God's word and not the kind of people who are just plain listeners. Our listening to God and to one another are mutually reinforcing. So stated negatively, if we never learn the art of listening, if listening doesn't become a habit in our lives, why would we imagine that we'll have the disposition to listen when God is speaking or even have the ears to hear that he is? If we don't grow in the skill of listening in one area of our life, it's likely that we won't be able to do so in another area of life. Stated more positively, if you can become a good listener, generally speaking, you'll be more naturally inclined to listen to the wisdom and word of God. These things are mutually reinforcing, and they're mutually dependent because very often, God will communicate his wisdom and word to us through other people. We have to listen to other people because quite often, where we need to hear God's word most clearly, we can't see that we need it, and it's only through other people that we can. More immediately, in these moments, as we sing to one another, as we read the word, as we hear sermons preached, we have to listen carefully And if listening is not part of our life outside of the gathered assembly, it won't be in the gathered assembly. If we can't listen with other people, we won't listen in isolation. We have to work to become good listeners, to become listeners as individuals and as a community. We need to be a listening church. This isn't easy. It goes against everything that we're inclined towards. So we've got to work on it. Just what is. That's why it's so pointed. Be quick. To listen. Now, there are two additional commands that he gives that enable quick listening. If you're slow to speak and slow to anger, you have a better likelihood of being quick to listen. So these commands are all mutually reinforcing as well. So be slow to speak. Perhaps the greatest obstacle to genuine, careful, attentive listening is the inclination to fill the void of silence or to speak over others, including God, with our own words. Now, once again, I don't think James is targeting primarily the casual conversation that you might have at work or in the lobby after church or over the dinner table, suggesting that Christians should be socially awkward by speaking so slowly or being so slow to speak that your interactions with everyone are just filled with awkward silences. That's not what James is getting at. That would be a wrong application of scripture. It's okay to engage in conversation. Instead, I think he's primarily trying to call us to be thoughtful in our responses. Not only thoughtful in what we say, but how we say it, in what we do with our speech. Slow to accuse, slow to lash out, slow to assess a situation and assign blame to God and others. So it's true that many of us need to just be slower in our speech all the time. These are good words of advice, whether it's in the context of our relationship to God and listening to his word and wisdom or just generally speaking. 
So Richard and I were talking about this text earlier this week, and he sent me a quote by a guy whose name I don't want to try to pronounce because I think it's French, and I'd mess it up, who said, don't talk unless you can improve the silence, leading to Richard's insightful, self-evaluating question of, will what I am about to say improve the silence? I think that's a good question for us often. could also ask, is what I am about to say going to get in the way of hearing what God is trying to say to me? I think asking ourselves these kinds of questions will help restrain our quick speech and enable careful listening. We'll be able to more easily set aside our, our, our already formulated opinion to ease our itch to get our assessment and ideas out there and to contemplate more carefully the ideas that God communicates to us in his word, and the insights that others might have to share with us. So be quick to hear. One way you can be faster in your listening is by being slower in your speaking. But he augments this instruction, the instruction to be slow to anger, because often hasty words and unrestrained anger go together. Hasty speech and riled emotions generally go hand in hand, We ought to be slow to anger. What is anger? Well, anger is that feeling of indignation or displeasure that's generally directed at a perceived or real wrongdoing. So when something goes wrong, when something is not set right, we get angry about it. We get angry in different ways because anger comes in different shapes and sizes. Some of us are brooders where we slowly but consistently allow that allow that anger to build up inside of us until it eventually erupts. Others of us just fly off the handle at the smallest thing, but it's anger all the same. Now, of course, anger can go by different names, and we assign it different names when we're trying to excuse it. For example, we might say something like, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. Or, I'm not mad, I'm just bothered by what you did, and I'm trying to communicate that to you clearly. Well, we try to re-describe our anger so that we can justify our anger. We might try to justify our anger by pointing out that the cause of the anger is really something that's worth getting angry about. Or we point out, somewhat self-righteously, that according to the good book, as long as you don't let the sun go down on your wrath, you're in the clear. So you're good, especially in the summer months. Besides, your anger is really the righteous kind anyway, right? So it doesn't really matter. Now, there are occasions when a right response to injustice and unrighteousness is anger. I think there are situations where we are rightly angered. But if you read the text that tells you to be slow to anger, and your first instinct is to Try to recall all of the other Bible verses that might give you permission to get angry. You might be detecting a problem. There are situations where there is righteous anger. But as Paul teaches, when he discusses the issue, that anger is never to be accompanied by sin, nor is it to stretch on forever. Our anger, when it finds expression, ought to imitate God's anger, that's tempted or that's tempered with patience and curbed by forgiveness. That's the kind of anger that God expresses. He's slow to anger and he's quick to forgiveness. 
More than that, when God's anger finds expression, it does so restoratively, entering into the broken situation, entering into the justice, and making things right. Just as when he makes our sin problem set right in Jesus Christ. There's an expression of anger that's accompanied by the hard work that's necessary to bring about righteousness and justice, to make things right again. I would say very often that even when we are righteously angry, we fail to take the next steps and channel that anger to become restorative. We emphasize the righteousness of our anger and we fail to participate in the restoration of the injustice or the brokenness that gave rise to our anger in the first place. We're content just to be angry. But God is never content just to be angry. So we shouldn't either. Still, I think too often, we mix things up in our fits of anger. Instead of being anger on God, angry on God's behalf, we take God's place and think that any injustice that happens against us regardless of whether or not God is offended, is worthy of an eternal damnation level of anger, where we take God's place and we go about trying to set things right by just being mad about it, by lashing out with hasty words. So James' point is this. This way of operating, your inclination to be angry at the drop of a hat will not bring about the righteousness that God wants to be brought about. It won't fix things. It won't set them right. It might bring a temporary stop to things. It might make you feel good that you've done something, but it won't actually set things right. It won't produce the righteousness of God. And more than that, when that kind of response becomes habituated in your life, it will interfere with your reception of God's word and wisdom, the things that are actually necessary to produce the righteousness of God. This is convicting, isn't it? think that some of us here need to repent to people in our lives because we've become the kind of person who's just angry, who makes things right, not with tender love and compassion, but with anger. Some of us are angry at God because the trials that he's put before us are hard and we don't see how he's setting us right through the trial. We need to repent, to offer the forgiveness of God, and to receive it. So we need to pay attention by being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Second, though, as we work towards receiving the word of God, this central command in the text, James instructs that we ought to weed out sin, utilizing this gardening metaphor in verse 21, where he says, Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth, and the evil that is so prevalent. Or, if you're reading the King James Version that I grew up with, the flowery phrase of the superfluity of naughtiness. We need to remove all of that from our lives. So however you want to say it, moral filth and prevalent evil are just really general terms that can include virtually every sin imaginable. Any action that would violate God's holiness Every action that would violate God's word, every act of sin is included in these categorical terms. So James is suggesting that sin in your life impedes the right reception of God's word 
And for that reason, we should always be working to weed sin out of our lives. We should not allow vice and sin to grow, but we should pull it out by the roots as quickly as possible. And the earlier we can detect sin in our life and rip it out of the garden of our life, the less time it has to sink in deep roots. This gardening metaphor is really helpful because we all know what it is to go to the garden and realize that a sapling has been growing there for a few weeks. And when we grab it with our hands and we rip up on it, it hurts our hands because sin that is able to last for a long time puts down roots and it's hard to get it out of our lives. Well, this metaphor just encourages quick and constant gardening of our lives so that we should always be fighting sin Viewing it as a poison that ought to be flushed out, something that chokes out the life-giving word of God in our lives. Now, I would say that probably every one of us are in different spots when we examine the gardens of our life. Some of us have been faithfully gardening, plodding along, pulling out the weeds of sin, and we should take this text as another encouragement in the whole of Scripture to keep on keeping on. Others of us neglected our lives and our hearts for so long that we can't quite tell the difference between the seed of God's word and the weeds in our lives. In fact, we might not be able to tell that God is at work in our life at all because we just haven't been in that regular habit of weeding out sin. So to those of us who perhaps have not attended to this weeding work in our lives, we need to hear James' pointed commands very pointedly. Start weeding out sin now. Don't wait any longer. Get to work. But what do you do if you're just waking up from a long season of inattention to God's word? What do you do if you've just now, perhaps in this moment or in the last few weeks, started noticing that you don't have just a few weeds to pull, but that you have a garden full of weeds? I could imagine two instinctual responses. First, you might just feel really discouraged, and you might think that it's too late for you. It's too late to start weeding the garden of your life. You have some alarm, but the discouragement mutes that alarm, and it results in inaction. You just don't even try. I want to encourage you, don't, don't be discouraged. Everyone pays attention sometime, and no one likes what they see, so you're not alone start weeding. But you also, as you start paying attention to your life, might be so alarmed and feel the urgency of James's instruction so intensely that you are inclined to just dive all in. There's no holding back. You're finally responding to Jesus. You're finally giving attention to your spiritual life before God. You're finally feeling the freedom of rooting out sin in your life. And you're finally feeling the joy of seeing those weeds pile up and a gently toiled soil becoming visible in your life. Well, that feeling lasts for a few weeks, but it seems that the more you weed out those big glaring plants that are crowding out God's word, you start to notice that for every one sapling that you pull out of the garden, you notice a hundred weeds underneath it. You start to get discouraged by the amount of work that's left. You were convinced that because you got the business of being a Christian, that you'd become perfectly like Christ in a week or two. And you realize that you just start seeing more and more sin in your heart. 
This is what I felt like every summer when I would work at a Christian camp during college. I would have a delightful summer of seeing sin in my life, tending to it carefully, and I would get home, and immediately I would realize I was not as good of a Christian as I was in the greenhouse of a summer camp. Well, that's the Christian experience that we all have. I don't want you to get discouraged. I want to help you by giving you one simple piece of advice. Don't be a weekend gardener. Don't go about your Christian life attending to it all in one quick motion. Don't attend to your Christian life one day a week. Don't attend to your Christian life for one week out of the year. Resist the urge to think that weeding really hard for one day will take care of all the weeding that needs to be done for the whole year. Resist the urge to think that you can reach spiritual perfection just on the weekends, by showing up here on Sunday, perhaps. The very nature of tending to the garden of your life is that it is slow, plodding work, and that you won't get it all done in one day. Now, I think there are some of us here who need to be encouraged to weed more, work harder. Don't settle for the fact that there's sin in your life. Others of us need to face the reality that our sin won't be taken away in a day. So even as we work away at the problems in sin that shows up in our life, it's not going to be gone tomorrow. So this might sound weird and unbiblical, but I assure you it is biblical. You have to be okay with being a sinner. You have to be okay with spotting sin in your life and knowing you're not going to get it out in one pull. That it's going to take constant and continual and faithful plotting, going to the garden of your life every day, loosening up the soil and working at the sin by the roots. You have to be okay with not being okay. But you also can't stop there. You don't just give up and say, well, because I won't get perfection, I don't do anything. You have to get after it. So we have to understand that it's a lifelong journey. It's a journey that we're equipped for when we pay attention to God's word, when we join in community with one another, when we're enabled by Christ to do so. I want to tell you that if you're seeing weeds in your life and you don't know what to do with them, perhaps you're discouraged. You're not sure what it looks like to persistently tend to your life before God. I would just invite you to talk with us. Talk with me afterwards or Josh or shoot us an email or talk to someone who you know better in this assembly and ask them to help you become a more faithful gardener, to more faithfully weed out sin from your life. That's why we're here together is to be on this gardening project with one another. To receive the word of God, we need to pay attention. We need to weed out sin and then we need to receive the word in humility. So we rid ourselves of the moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, or to humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your soul. There are three parts of that phrase that we need to consider. What it means to humbly receive the word, what the implanted word actually is, and what it means for the implanted word to save your soul. Humbly receive, or to receive the word with humility. That is, we're to receive it without making demands of it or without trying to be its master. 
without the edge of pride that believes we already know what God is saying in his word, without the arrogance that believes that we have nothing left to learn, or that our present understanding of the word is all that there is to gain from it. So maybe we can think about it this way. If you go to the doctor, there's a way to humbly receive their assessment of you, and there's a way that pride and arrogance can keep you from receiving their instruction, and it results in your own detriment. So if you go to the doctor and they ask you about your symptoms, why you came in today, and you ignore that question and you go on to give them your own self-diagnosis based on your WebMD search, you are not going to receive humbly the assessment and instruction of the doctor. And then when they patiently work with you and start to make their assessment of you and give you their diagnosis and prescribe you their treatment, you start interjecting and disagreeing, pointing to that more authoritative website that told you something different. You try to say the doctor's wrong. They don't know what they need. Well, all you're doing in that moment is just trying to get the doctor to validate your own opinion. You're not actually looking for the doctor's opinion. I think quite often we can receive the word in that way, where we are not trying to get God's opinion on something. We're trying to look for a few verses from God's word that can validate our own opinions. We're not quite interested in God's assessment of ourselves. We've already assessed ourselves, and we're trying to find some text that can put God's stamp of approval on our own assessment. That is not receiving God's word in humility. To receive God's word in humility is to come with open arms, looking for God's assessment of us, and being willing to follow in the directives that God gives us. This is quite hard to do. And it's quite easy to convince ourselves that we're doing it when we're really not, particularly for those of us who have grown up in the Christian church. I think many of us can read the text of scripture that we've heard over and over again, and we somewhat receive it, but not with the humility that says that we actually need it, or that God's word has something to say to us now. I think a warning sign for all of us is that if we can go years and years of reading God's word, and we never come across something that we don't like, that we never come across a directive that grates against our inclinations, when we never arrive at a doctrinal position or a point of personal discipleship in our reading of the scriptures that we just don't want to receive, we may not be engaging with God's word in humility, trying to be taught by it. We may be engaging in God's word, already acting as its master, trying to tell it what to say to us. So instead of gazing into the word, and seeing the way that we ought to change and be changed by it, we gaze into the word and just look at ourselves, how we perceive things already. Now that might sound strange to you, that you might read the Bible and come across things that you don't like in it. Well, if we believe that we're not reaching full Christian maturity in the moment, it shouldn't surprise us that that happens. I can confess to you that more often than I'd like to admit, And even right now, there's a particular point of Christian discipleship that's convicting in the word of God that I don't like. And in fact, I have tried to run hermeneutical circles around that uh, point of doctrine because I just don't see the goodness and truth and beauty in it. I think that's part of us navigating the Christian life 
is to put ourselves under the word of God and wrestle with our lack of affection for what God loves and allow his word to transform us in spite of ourselves. But none of us have reached full maturity. None of us are so like God that we'll always be thrilled about what he says. We've got to receive it with humility, trusting that God's word really is true and good and beautiful, even if we don't have the eyes to see it in the moment. I think that's what it means to humbly receive the implanted word. But what then is the implanted word? Well, very briefly, I think James has in mind every written and spoken word of God, the totality of God's speech and communication to us. Now, we'll do well to remember that James's letter is probably the first letter of the New Testament. Nothing else has been written yet. So when he's talking about God's word, I think he's talking about Israel's scriptures, the Old Testament from our point of view. It's the royal law prescribed in scripture that he talks about in chapter 2, verse 8. But he's also talking about the teachings of Jesus, the oral teachings of Jesus that have not yet been written down. For James, the word of God is the entirety of God's revelation of himself and of his work in this world that finds particular clarity and expression in the person and teachings of Jesus. So for us, the implanted word refers to the message about Jesus and the entirety of God's self-disclosure in the Old and New Testaments. All of it's God's word, all of it we need to attend to. The word is described as implanted because of the seed and the soil metaphor, but also because God's word has already always condescended to reach down to humanity. It's always been given to us. It's not up in heaven so that we have to go up there to get it, but it's been granted to us through the prophets and the apostles, and most particularly through Christ himself. More than that, in keeping with the prophetic scriptures, God writes his law on the hearts of his people, and he gives us his indwelling spirit so that the word of God will be not only before us externally in the written word, but internally mediated by God's spirit. So the implanted word has both internal and external references. The external scriptures and the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. We must receive the implanted word through these holy scriptures that are made alive through the inner work and testimony and witness of the Holy Spirit. We receive humbly the implanted word, and this is what the implanted word is able to do. It is able to save your souls. But what does that mean? Well, I think this highlights the urgency of the command to humbly receive the implanted word. It's because it leads us to salvation. When the word is received and nurtured, cultivated in the soil of our being, it produces the righteousness of God, which is able to save your soul. It is able to save you. Now, James uses this soul not to distinguish the soul from the body as if God's word will only save your non-physical being. He uses the term in the same way that we might speak of a certain number of souls who are lost at sea. It's just using a part to speak of the whole person. It's for that reason that the whole person must receive God's word and attend to it. Because salvation is not just a matter of the inner recesses of the spiritual life, but it includes all of life. It's intended to bring God's flourishing and righteousness to bear in every aspect of life. 
for this reason in a couple of weeks that we'll consider James's description of true religion is this, to care for the orphan and the widow, to keep yourself spotless from the world because our Christian life is not just about our soul and our spirit, it's about all of life. So it's able to save us. Now the phrasing is important here. Notice that James doesn't say that you should receive the implanted word which has already saved you. Even as he's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ, those people who identify as Christians, instead he says that the implanted word has the ability to save your souls, indicating that there is a future aspect to salvation not already experienced. And further indicating that this aspect of salvation can only be experienced through the continual ongoing reception of the word. This is because your reception of the implanted word is not an action that happened in the past that you note with a date on the front of your Bible or a testimony that you give when you talk about your salvation. Instead, it is a way of life for all of life that's marked by nurturing the seed of God's word and living in it. It's a way of life that becomes so connected with God's word that the seed and the soil are no longer distinguishable. The soil becomes so defined by the implanted seed that the two are one and the same. It's able to save your soul in a present and futuristic sort of way. Christian salvation True religion, the message of the gospel, is not focused on one particular day in your life years ago, but on your life now and every day that remains. It's about the ongoing life of the believer. James is not really that concerned about when the word was first implanted. He takes it for granted that it was planted, that God gives new life to believers, He's instead interested in discussing how Christians should live now in the present moment. Because the present moment that you're in, which is every moment that you're in from now to eternity, he's concerned about the present moment that we're in because those moments are nothing less than a snapshot of eternity. So we don't talk about salvation only as something in the past or only as something in the future, but in the every moment life that we live now. We need this word to give us salvation in every one of those moments, to bring about the righteousness of God in every moment of our lives. So I urge you then to pay attention, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. I urge you to weed sin out of your life, every single day, to be about the business of weeding out that sin that chokes out the life-giving seed of the word. I urge you to receive with humility the implanted word. You hear these things and you're still confused about what this means for you because this is an individual and communal calling. I want to encourage you to talk with me afterwards. Shoot me an email. This is what we're about, is tending to the word of God and tending to it together. This calling is urgent. It's important. It's constant. So let's receive it by God's grace and through his spirit together. Let's pray. Father, we 
thank you for this word and ask that you would enable us to obey it. We pray for your Holy Spirit, that your Holy Spirit would breathe your life into our hearts, that you would renew our hearts through your work so that we'll be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger so that we'll have a disposition to receive your word with hunger and humility. It's in Christ that we pray.